Dear John by Rosalie Parker There are times when something affects you deeply and alters the way you look at the world. It's happened to me on several occasions. When your father and then you were born, so vulnerable, yet full of possibilities. And last year, when I learned of my illness. But the thing I'm going to tell you about took place in my late forties, when I was living comfortably and happily, and it grew out of something so simple, took me unawares. For a while, I was lost to myself. Time has passed, but I think and dream about it still. I'm hoping that if I unburden myself to you, you will, with your scientific training, help me arrange what happened more comfortably in my mind. I've been unwilling to tell anyone about it before, even Peter, who has been my best friend since I was five. You're too young to remember John. I thought of him as a quiet man, somewhat shy, with hidden depths. I only wish that he had been more forthcoming. I did my best to bring him out of his shell, but there was always something that seemed to hold him back. The events that I am about to describe changed my view of him entirely. We found the letters in the bottom drawer of a filing cabinet in his study. His personal papers needed looking through before the clearance firm took away his nearly worthless furniture and effects. Anything of value, there was little enough of that, had been sold at the auction house in town. John's home of thirty years was also to be auctioned, although it could hardly be considered desirable or of much value. It was a badly maintained Edwardian terrace, and the kitchen and bathroom were damp. Rain had dripped through the roof into the attic, staining the ceiling of the bedroom underneath. Peter and I were, in the absence of any close family, John's executors. His estate, what there was of it, had been left to a second cousin once removed, an orphan who was only six years old. Her parents were killed in a car crash, and John took pity on the little girl who was living with her grandparents. We had two piles of paper, one for discarding and the other for keeping to look through. The pile for discarding was by far the larger of the two. Peter said, Not much to show for a life, Justin. Not much at all. I waited until Peter went to the bathroom then retrieved the slim bundle of letters from the keeping pile and put them in my pocket. I was at that point little more than mildly curious, and Peter might have thought me unnecessarily nosy if I'd read them there and then. They were the only letters John had kept, so they must have been important to him. When Peter returned, he got stuck into the filing cabinet and didn't seem to notice that the letters were missing from the pile. Once we had finished with the papers, we moved to John's bedroom, stuffing clothes from the chest of drawers into black plastic bin liners for the charity shop. A flimsy modern wardrobe stood in the far corner. At first I 
thought it was empty. When I pulled out the bottom drawer, I found a pair of women's shoes. I found a pair of women's shoes. I had always thought John was what they called a confirmed bachelor, but the shoes gave me pause for thought. They were gold and had open toes and slingbacks. The shoes of a young woman, despite, or perhaps because of, the platform heels. They were sexy and elegant, showing few signs of wear. I was reluctant to put them in the charity bag, but couldn't think how to explain to Peter why I might want to keep them. Peter is a very down-to-earth sort of man. Things are black and white to him. So I put the shoes in the bag, and hoped, in vain as it turned out, that I would be able to retrieve them later. John had always been a bit of a mystery to us. We were friends because we went to the same school, and I knew he worked as a clerk in the job centre in town, but the rest of his life was a closed book. Even at school he was secretive, and had few friends apart from Peter and me. Like us, he hated sport, and we often bunked off and hung out behind the sixth form building. One thing I knew about John was that he was quietly determined to follow his own path. He didn't much care what other people thought of him. I admired him for that, knowing that it was a quality I lacked. As was expected of us, Peter and I went to university. John left school in the middle of his A-levels and got a job in what was then the Labour Exchange. He stayed there until his death of a heart attack at work, never seeking promotion or pastures new. The three of us met up every few months in the Red Lion, John usually content to listen to Peter and me rabbiting on about our jobs and families, the latest films and exhibitions. He enjoyed classical music, however, and sometimes talked about his occasional attendances at concerts in Manchester and Leeds. We met regularly for twenty-odd years. John never once mentioned a girlfriend or partner. I assumed he was one of those asexual people who choose not to enter into close relationships. Once or twice I introduced him to single women friends, but he never showed any interest. When we had finished disposing of John's clothes, we called it a day and went home, each with half of the keeping pile of papers to look through. After dinner, I shut myself in my study, opened the briefcase and took out the letters. To be honest, I felt quite excited, being able to find out something of John's private life without him being there to put the kibosh on it. I suppose curiosity got the better of me. He must, in any case, have known the letters would be found. There were ten of them, nine handwritten in an elegant forward-sloping script. They seemed to be in date order. Naturally, the letters John must have written in return were missing. At the bottom of the pile was a sealed white envelope addressed to me. There... In my desk drawer, 
if you'd be kind enough to fetch them. I'll read them to you. Sixth of June, nineteen seventy five. Dear John, it's quite funny, isn't it, that this is a dear John letter, as if we were at the end of our correspondence rather than the beginning. I'm intrigued that you have chosen me to be your pen pal, without even a photo to guide you. For all you know, I could be an old woman, or a forty-year-old man. Oh dear, have I sowed the seeds of doubt in your mind? I promise that I am the girl whose details you were sent by the pen pal club. The only things I know about you, dear John, are that you are male and eighteen, and I have been warned not to give you my telephone number. The organisers seem very cautious. But I suppose they know what they're doing. Are you still at school? I have two weeks of my summer term left, study leave mainly, and then I'll be free. I have a place to read English at Durham University, so my freedom won't last long. It's quite exciting and scary at the same time. No one in my family has ever been to university, and I'm held up by my aunt and uncle as a role model for my poor cousins Elaine and Joe. Who have every intention of leaving school at sixteen? I won't be disappointed if you're a trainee gardener or a barber or something. After all, the pen pal club is about bringing different kinds of people together. You probably want to know more about me. I'm pretty ordinary: medium height, medium length brown hair, average looks. I'm not a girly girl or a tomboy, but somewhere in between. I live in a semi-detached house with my parents and my little sister Bryony. She's spoilt rotten. We moved here when I was five, and I can't remember our previous house, which was in another town. I don't have any particular vices, except ice cream. I like reading, and I play hockey for my school. It's a girls' grammar, and on Friday nights my friends and I go to a disco or a pub crawl. My parents don't know about that. I've been to France on a school exchange trip. And it's the only foreign country I've visited. We usually go to Devon for two weeks in the summer. It's really warm here in Sussex, and I'm spending a lot of time reading in the garden. I have quite a suntan. It's very quiet in the house. Mum and Dad are both at work in the daytime, and Brian is at school. I don't always like being here on my own. Sometimes I meet up with friends, but most of them have stricter parents than mine. And they're supposed to be on study leave too. I suppose it's all right so long as I don't spend too much time in the house. My favourite things: ice cream. I've already mentioned that. Dancing, moonlight, books, shoes, mum and dad, and I suppose Bryony. Walking on the downs. Now I've come clean about myself. I think you should too. I hope the above isn't too dull or brainless. I refuse to mention politics, philosophy, or music until I've heard from you and know where you stand. Don't let it be too long before you write. I'm looking forward to it very much. All best wishes, Ruth. Twelfth of June, nineteen seventy-five. Dear John, thank you so much for your letter, and I'm glad you liked mine. I'm not sure it deserved your fantastically long reply. But you should know that you've cheered me up no end. I've been a bit down in the dumps lately, but perhaps I'd better not burden you with that. 
I'm not especially clever. Most of the girls at my school go to university. It's expected of us. I imagine it wasn't the same at your school. I respect your reasons for getting a job instead, although I'm not sure I understand them. From what you say, you were perfectly capable of getting top grades. As long as you're happy, it really doesn't matter. You've lost me with the classical music references. I'm mostly a David Bowie fan, but hey, whatever turns you on. On the philosophy front, you're well ahead of me. I've never read Marx or Engels. So far I've concentrated on fiction. Dickens is my favourite, and some spooky authors like M.R. James. I'm hoping it will be different at university, and we'll read a wider selection of books. I'm looking forward to leaving home now. It'll be a new start. Blow some of the cobwebs away. I've been taking long walks on the downs. The air is clearer up there, and the views are amazing. You can see the whole of the Weald, and nearly as far north as the southern edge of London. Do you walk in the hills? I know many people in the north do. I'd never been further north than Birmingham until my university interview at Durham. The scenery flashing past the train carriage window was breathtaking. You asked for a photograph. I suppose I could send one, although I'm worried you'll go off me when you see how boring I am. I have one my father took last winter in the garden. Perhaps I'll put it in the envelope with this letter. You must promise to find a photo of yourself, though. It's only fair. I'm dying to know what you look like. It's extraordinary that you're saving to buy your own house. I can't imagine being in that position. Perhaps you could describe it to me in your next letter. It must be lovely to have your own money to spend. All I'll have to live on is my poxy student grant. It's getting late now, and Mum, Dad and Brian are still not back from Auntie Daisy's. She must have made some of her lethal fruit punch. It's too dark to go into the garden, so I'm stuck inside on my own. I'm writing to you, dear John, on the dining room table, trying to keep my mind off scary things. Mum says I worked too hard for my A-levels, and am now a bit nervy. I'm sure that's all it is. I'll be able to sleep properly again soon. I'm telling you this because I already think of you as a friend. Do you believe in spooky things? Mum and Dad and Bryony have just arrived home. Bryony is asleep in Dad's arms, so I can safely go to bed. Do write soon, and be kind about the photo. Ruth 21st of June, 1975 Dear John, I hardly know what to say. How can I react to descriptions like nymph in jeans and ethereal beauty? I'm very flattered, but are we really talking about the same photo? I was about to go to the youth club disco when it was taken, so I'm wearing my favourite platforms. I think I told you I have a thing about shoes. They make me look taller, but otherwise I'm as wispy and scruffy as usual. Thank you for sending your photo. It's a shame it's blurred. But despite that, I can see that you have a lovely smile. Is that a wedding suit? Seriously, though, I feel that I know you a bit better now. And you go for long walks, too. How well suited we are, dear John, although all that political stuff you write about is lost on me. My parents vote conservative. 
Perhaps you could educate me and help me decide who to support. I think I can work out where you are coming from. Your house sounds great. Two bedrooms means you can have friends to stay. I hope you save enough for the deposit before anyone else buys it. Even if they do, you'll probably find somewhere just as good. I wish my parents would move house. Although I'm going away to Durham soon, I'll still have to come home for vacations. I'm trying not to let it get me down, but it's proving difficult. This probably sounds overly mysterious, and I'd like to explain it to you properly, but I'm afraid you'll laugh or think I'm crazy. If I don't tell someone soon, I think I will go crazy. I've told you I'm a bit nervous and down in the dumps. Well, it's rather more than that. I'll take a deep breath and just come out with it. When I'm in the house, reading, or writing to you, I feel as if someone is looking over my shoulder. I can't always see them, but I hear them breathing. Their outline is very faint, just an impression, but I think it's a man, a middle-aged man, and it's always my left shoulder he's peering over. I haven't been able to tell my parents about it because they'd insist I see the doctor. I could really do with some advice. Am I just a bag of nerves and seeing things because of it? It feels very real and creepy at the time. If I sit still and stop what I'm doing, he eventually fades away. He's not overtly hostile, but seems to have a goggling kind of curiosity about me, which is really quite repellent. I'm writing this in the garden, as he doesn't seem to venture out here. Will you write to me soon and tell me what you think? I'll try to take it on the chin if you're entirely sceptical. Love, Ruth. 2nd of July 1975 Dear John, thank you, thank you, and thank you again for your kind reply. I'm so glad you're taking me seriously, but you think it might all be an hallucination. Perhaps you're right, and I'll gradually get better as the summer wears on. It makes me a bit crazy, though, doesn't it? I hope I haven't put you off. It's interesting that you're not a believer in the supernatural. I suppose it's because you're a materialist and not into any kind of religion. The opium of the people. What does that make spooky stuff? Marijuana? I'm not sure where I stand, especially since my goggling man came on the scene. I'm seeing him more often now. I've even been glimpsing him in the living room and the kitchen, just as I leave the room. He frightens me, dear John even if he is a product of my own brain. I'd do anything to be rid of him. You're right that a change of scene might help me get a fresh perspective on things, so I'm going to take you up on your invitation, even if it's against the pen pal club rules. It'll have to be just a day trip, though. My parents would never let me stay overnight. I'll leave very early in the morning, so we can have a long day. If I come on the date you suggest... Will you be able to meet me at the station? I suppose you'll have to take a day off work. Would that be all right? Oh dear, I'm very excited, as you can probably tell. Perhaps you can show me around York, 
Or shall we go out into the countryside? I don't even know if you own a car. I'll see you in a few days. I can hardly believe it. It'll be a real adventure. Ruth Eleventh of July, 1975 Dear John, things have changed. The world is subtly different. A connection has been made that can never be broken. I was beside myself with excitement on the train, and it was a joy and a relief to see you waiting on the platform. You made everything so easy and natural. Walking round York was a treat, the city a revelation to me, and the Minster divine. Pun intended. It was silly of me to wear my beloved platforms, though, and so much more comfortable once I'd exchanged them for the espadrilles you bought. I was probably trying to impress you. I must have left the shoes in your bag. Or at least I hope so. Returning them will provide a good excuse to meet up again. Writing to each other has made us friends. Meeting has made us good friends, I hope you agree. I enjoyed talking to you in the museum garden. You are so passionate about the things you believe in. But I have to admit that I was distracted, because I could see my tormentor standing at the end of the bench, listening to everything that was said. You've made it clear how you feel about this apparition, and I tried to stay calm, but I can't seem to do anything to make him go away. I haven't any dark secrets, nothing to feel guilty about. And if that makes me squeaky clean, then so be it. I'm sure I'm not hysterical. And I'm desperate for some kind of resolution. I'm not sure what I'm going to do next. But I'm grateful to you for letting me write to you about it and for giving me such considerate advice. I don't mean to spoil what was otherwise a wonderful day. Even the weather was kind to us. Being immersed in the history of the city, with such a knowledgeable guide, was my favourite part of the day. The city walls, the overhanging timbered buildings in the narrow streets, the gargantuan meal in the golden lion, these are things I will remember for a long time. Stepping into the railway carriage and leaving you on the platform was a sobering moment. It would be easier if we lived closer together. Write soon, and look after the shoes for me. They're very precious. Ruth 18th of July, 1975 Dear John, I've waited four days before picking up my pen. I haven't known what to say, how to deal with this. It was completely unexpected. I've been a fool. I've opened up to you in a confiding sort of way. I must have given you the wrong impression. You're kind and sympathetic and intelligent, and I like you very much, but I never meant to stir up romantic feelings in you. You say you love me, but in truth we don't know each other well enough for that. I can't help feeling that your declaration, coming so early in our friendship, might spoil things for the future, if there is a future. It would be better if you could take it back. Perhaps if we never mention it again, then everything would be the way it was. I felt so free and natural with you, and I don't want that to be spoiled.
I can't help but be hurt that you're suddenly so dismissive of my troubles, as if they are an inconvenience to you. Even if the apparition is just a product of my stressed-out brain, he's causing me a lot of unhappiness. It's as if you've run out of patience with a part of me that doesn't fit with your ideal. You want me to be the perfect woman. Unreal. Without flaws. Shall we pretend it never happened? Try to go on as before. I'm not sure we can. I feel uncomfortable. And upset. And I don't know if I trust you anymore. I suppose I'm very innocent. I've had a sheltered upbringing. And I've never had a serious boyfriend. So you must forgive me if, through inexperience, I've inadvertently led you on. I know I should be flattered by the compliments, all the lovely things you've said, but I'm not the goddess you make me out to be. She's a figment of your imagination. I'm ordinary. I'm human. I'm not some woman in a poem or a film. I make mistakes. I'm beginning to think I made a mistake confiding in you. All the time, my tormentor is getting bolder. More intrusive. Right now he's leaning over my shoulder. Reading every word. I can't go on like this much longer. I never thought of myself as highly strung before. But you don't want to read this, do you, John? You'd rather fantasize about some woman who only exists in your head. Prove me wrong. Step back from the brink. Write a letter to a friend cherishes you, but can't yet think about love. Ruth twenty fifth of july nineteen seventy five. Dear John, you saw him in York. Why didn't you say so at the time? You let me get angry with you. I thought I had lost my only confidant. I was in despair. You did see him, didn't you? You're not just making it up to please me. I'm even more scared than I was before. Why has he chosen me? The only interesting things in my life are you, dear John. And him. His eyes follow me everywhere. In the house, in town, even in the garden. I can almost feel his breath on my cheek as he leans over my shoulder, spoiling everything. My thoughts are stolen from me, all my movements tracked. There is no part of my life that is my own. You give me a modicum of hope, dear John. Apart from you, he's all I think about, night and day. I have seen the doctor, and he has prescribed Valium some other pills. I didn't tell him what the real trouble was. When she is home, my mother watches me like a hawk. There is talk of postponing university for a year. My life is falling apart. Only you can save me. Please, please write soon. Ruth. 30th of July, 1975 Dear John, You haven't written. I'm sorry things have to end this way. 
I hope your life is long and happy, and that you quickly forget about me. As I've explained to you before, I'm no one special. You'll find someone who is the perfect match for you. I know you tried to make me feel better by pretending you had seen him in York. I forgive you for that. You were only trying to help. But it has not relieved any of my suffering. Goodbye, dear John. Love, Ruth. Second of August, nineteen seventy-five. Dear John Butler, I am writing to let you know that two days ago Ruth took an overdose of tablets. She died yesterday in Brighton Infirmary. She wouldn't have suffered in any way. It was very peaceful at the end. Looking through Ruth's things, I. I found your letters to her. I must say, I am shocked and angry that you wrote to her in the way you did. It is clear that she confided in you, and you did nothing to alert us to the delusions from which she was suffering. I would have thought that any other intelligent young man would have acted with more compassion. My poor daughter was obviously very sick, and you did nothing to help her, even at the end encouraging her in her beliefs. We had no idea how advanced her illness had become. I thought she was merely suffering from stress. You could have saved her, and you didn't. The whole family is distraught. We can't believe we have lost our daughter in this horrible way. You will not be welcome at the funeral, so please keep away. And do not reply to this letter. Marjorie Smith. Twentieth of August, nineteen seventy-five. Dear John, it's so calm here in the green of the garden, alive with late flowering plants and the chirping of the birds. I hope you are well, dear John, and I must apologise for the note I wrote to you. I was imprisoned in anguish and could think of no other way to escape. Here, they look after me. As if I were a fragile piece of porcelain. I think I could have loved you, and I accept now that you love me. It is probably the case, though, that we will never write to each other again. You will have noticed that there is no address on the top of this letter. Isolation is the price I pay for peace. They will be calling me in soon. Live well. Dear John, love, Ruth. Now, open the envelope addressed to me, and I will read it. Fifth of April, two thousand and five. Dear Justin, I know that it'll be you, not Peter, who'll read her letters. You're always so curious about me, asking questions I usually manage to deflect. I don't know why you're so interested. You have a pretty full life yourself. Despite all that, I still count you as a kind of friend, because of our school days, because there's no one else except Peter, and because I want to keep you close. 
I had a health scare, my heart. You don't know about that. And it made me realise that I need to write to you before it's too late. You'll have read Ruth's letters first. I know how methodical you are. And I expect you will be all agog that I fell in love once in my life. And she was the love, the only love of my life. I have been waiting for her to write again for thirty years. Do you like the letters, Justin? They answer some of your questions about me. You'll never find the letters I wrote to Ruth. Her mother would have seen to that, so don't go chasing after them. You'll have to be content with one side of the story. I really did catch a glimpse of Ruth's goggling man in York. He looked just like you, as you are now, a middle-aged man, asking me intrusive questions that I don't want to answer. You were leaning over the bench, inspecting me. It was only recently that I realised it must be you, smarming all over her, making her feel spied upon, spoiling her life. Her letters to me were private you couldn't stop yourself from gloating over them. Wherever she is, I hope she is happy and free. I will never be able to forgive you, Justin, for making her life a misery, for tearing us apart, for enjoying the letters so much. Not that my feelings will mean anything to you. You've had your fix. John Today's story was Dear John by Rosalie Parker. It was read by Jasper Lestrange. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>